Well, this is Current Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air. I am Jim Grant, and uh, with me, as always, is uh, Eric Whitehead at the controls. We are separated today owing to uh, certain technical difficulties, but he is no farther than like 10 feet from here. And similarly with the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant, he is sitting in our newsroom as opposed to our customary uh, recording, uh, what would you call it, Evan, uh, studio or cell? I think cell. I think studio because we're all in different rooms now. Yeah, that's right. But it is not just we three. We are joined by Tim Bergen, who is a formidable McTavish indeed. He is first and foremost the father of two. Secondly, he is uh, an experienced and a successful investor who has done just about everything in the world of buying low and selling high. He has dealt in credit default swaps and credit proprietary trader, both in New York and Toronto. And he worked for 12 years with banks and hedge funds and uh, did well enough to have, uh, I don't know, to have achieved the highest grade in capitalism, which is that of independent capitalist. He uh, manages his own portfolio, and he writes about it, too. Uh, Tim, that is a most questionable line of work, writing about investing, but do what you will. And what he writes is a most lucid and actionable set of ideas encompassed under the banner On Beyond Investing. So he is a, a deep value, long, short investor, that hardy, if not extinct breed, he does research, which shows you that he has. I, I like that idea. Evan, don't you? I mean, actual research, it seems so. I'm in favor of it. Retro, yeah. And also, I, I'm going to quote him now in his own words. He said at one point in a beyond investing number I have before me, he says that he is inclined to err on the bearer side of things, which commends him to this podcast and I expect to many people in the grants world. So, Tim, welcome. Well, thank you very much for that, Jim. I'm, I'm totally flattered, and it's a, it's a great honor to be speaking to yourself and, and the rest of your team. Yeah. Well, this project began, that is to say, your appearance on the podcast began after a couple of podcasts in which a number of our guests, and I and certainly I, took a skeptical and, um, I think by your lights, um, a sorely uninformed view on the fraught issue of climate change. So I want to begin, Tim, by asking you if you would uh, compress your well-formed, I know, argument into a few dozen well-chosen words. What should we know? What should an investor know about climate? Well, climate change is real. The science is relatively simple and urgent cuts to CO2 is required. And it's easy to come upon this opinion just by doing the type of research anybody would do before they invest in a stock. Uh, and, the, and the simple basics are CO2 is a greenhouse gas like methane. This was discovered 150 years ago. This basically means that it can let through light, but it absorbs heat that's radiated by the earth. Therefore, more CO2 is, means more heat in the system. And having CO2 is beneficial because it's the reason that the, all of the heat from the earth doesn't escape at night. But just like your mom always said, you know, too much of anything is a bad thing. Yeah. So over the last 25 years, CO2 has doubled, and that's led the Earth to be roughly 1.1 degree Celsius warmer than pre-industrial average. And we're currently warming at roughly 0.2 Celsius per decade. And we're almost half a degree warmer since the year 2000. Tim, how is it that over the course of a calendar year, and you're, you're from Toronto, no? Or you're living in Toronto? I'm living in Copenhagen, but I, I did live in Toronto previously. Well, in, in New York and certainly in upstate New York, we go uh, every calendar year in a swing of in Fahrenheit now from about zero 
uh, to about 100. That's t- typical year's variability in uh, temperature in upstate New York. And I don't know, the world jogs by. I mean, it, it, so if 100 degrees every 365 days doesn't kill us, why would 0.2, whatever it was, centigrade over the course of I mean, what? Why can't nature and humanity adapt to what seems, at least to the, I admit it, wholly uninformed layman, speaking to you now, why can't we adapt more easily than some people insist on? Well, I think the, re- the, the easiest way to think about this is not in terms of the daily temperatures, but in terms of the average. So the average temperatures have been getting hotter, and, and like I said, they're hotter by one degree over, mm. you know, the last, over pre-industrial. But the way to think about this is more like as your body. So the body's natural temperature is at 37 degrees Celsius, and, and that barely fluctuates. Um, however, if you get up to 38 degrees centigrade, you know, you have a fever. And if you get to 39 degrees centigrade, you have to call a doctor. And things quickly go wrong above 39. Yeah. So it's not really the, the daily variability. It's more like the average temperature of the system. And, you know, as humans, we've become used to a pretty stable temperature over our 10,000 years. It's really only been, you know, the last 20, sorry, 50 years. And, and mostly the last 20 where the warming has really increased rapidly. Yeah. Um, and we're already seeing the weather effects that come with the warming. And a way to think of it is just there's too much energy in the system and that causes poor side effects, just like what would occur if your body temperature rose. Yeah, I've been thinking about this since uh, you contacted us and uh, I, I dare say not uh, researching it by any means. I've been thinking about it. And, I'm, and uh, you know, there's, of course, there is a, a generational divide in, in the typical approach to climate change. It's much more a, an issue with younger people than it is to baby boomers. And I, I put that down perhaps uh, to my own recalled experience. Now, the climate change is for me and for people of my generation, I was born in 1946, the third apocalyptic scenario of our lifetimes. The first was nuclear annihilation. Now, when I was in grade school, we had to duck and cover. And duck, it was like talking about eight-year-olds, duck under a desk to escape uh, the aftershocks of an expected atomic explosion. All right, that was number one. Number two was Paul Ehrlich in the 60s uh, with uh, the population bomb and with the, uh, the certain imminent extinction, or certainly the uh, a desolation of the human race through overpopulation. And we didn't have a nuclear war. America, this actually this past year, has it's, it's achieved, if that's the word, zero population growth. Uh, these things tend not to be as bad as, uh, as popular emotional opinion has it at the in, most intense moment of, the, of these uh, perceived crises. Can you characterize climate change in that context, or is it something entirely different? Well, I think it's something entirely different. Um, You know, in terms of the nuclear annihilation, like that was a risk, right? Like a bomb could have gone off. That that could have happened, right? Whereas what's occurring now is the scientists are saying, well, look, we've warmed one degree, um, and every year has gotten hotter, and every year the, the most extreme temperatures have increased, uh, damages from storms have increased, like these effects are occurring. And right. what's going on now is we're at a level where it's changing, but it's not necessarily dangerous, if that makes some sense. Yeah. And where it becomes dangerous, I mean, like, 
is easy for me to say, but you know, if you're in a low-lying or in poorer countries, the effects have certainly been more real. However, you know, once you get above 1.5 degrees, it, it starts to get pretty scary, and once you get to two degrees, it it, it starts to get really scary. Okay, the, so, so the, it's, the, it's the same in terms of you know probability. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, a word from our sponsor, which happens to be Grant's Interest Rate Observer. It has come to our attention that uh, not every listener to the Grant's podcast is a subscriber to Grant's, which is, I, I, I think it's an opportunity for, for both of us. And uh, I can quote uh, a testimonial from two of our friends. And here it goes. Quote, page for page, pound for pound, Grant's Interest Rate Observer is the finest financial periodical in print, period, close quote, Stanley Druckenmiller. Yeah, Stan Druckenmiller said that. Number two, page for page, pound for pound, Grant's Interest Rate Observer is the second finest financial periodical in print, period, close quote, Steve Forbes. Well, yes, Steve has another publication of mine, but number two is pretty good when Steve says it. So Grant says, ah, we, we say, uh, forewarned is better. That's one of our slogans. And here we are in the 10th plus year of a debt-laden financial expansion, business expansion, and all sorts of excesses and interesting anomalies cropping up. And uh, it's your time to subscribe. And to do that, it's as easy as can be. What you do is go www grantspop.com slash pod, P-O-D, 2020, www.grantspub, that's P-U-B as in the saloon, grantspub.com slash pod, as in podcast, 2020. And the reason that is a useful thing to know is that if you subscribe now, I will send you, yeah, a personally autographed copy of the 2016 Hayek Prize winning book that I happened to write. It's called uh, The Forgotten Depression. It's about the business cycle downturn of 1920-21, a very engaging history, if I do say so, of that event. The last governmentally unmedicated business cycle downturn in modern American history. Very timely because it's the 100th anniversary this year of the start of it. So you get that autographed book, and most importantly, you get a subscription to Grants. What's the price, Eric? It's like nothing, right? It's like $1,200. And, of course, that comes complete with access to our 37 years of archive material. So you get your own, like, uh, MBA waiting to be self-administered. Or what's better than MBA? I don't know, CFA or it's uh, being an informed and historically aware investor. That's what you get. So please do visit us at uh, www.grantspob.com slash pod2020 uh, to avail yourselves of this fabulous New Year's offer for the finest financial publication, page for page, pound for pound, in print. So the, cli the climate is warming, be it so. And the question is what to do about it. Now, I'm, uh, the New York Post, which is uh, a Murdoch paper in New York, um, and therefore inclined to be, um, as you would call it, a denier of climate change, or at least a deep skeptic of it, uh, ran a two-page piece in the editorial pages about conservative kind of uh, set of ideas coming from 
uh, free market and conservative people. I dare say you are a free market man yourself. And what is proposed by the, this new cohort, including James Baker and George Schultz, those eminences, is uh, what they call a, a carbon dividend. And uh, the idea in the simplest form is there would be a, a rising tax on carbon-based energy sources like coal and gas and oil, and slightly higher prices for gasoline, air travel and the like would be the result. And so the idea would be market forces would uh, disincentivize people from using uh, 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 carbon-emitting energy and, uh, you know, and, uh, and the services that require carbon energy and uh, be paid into a big pot. It would not disappear into the government coffers, it says here, but rather it would go into a special fund. And this fund would be divided into equal shares that would be apportioned equally, as I say, and distributed to all Americans once every three months. So it would be a carbon dividend. So it would be a positive thing. And those who um, use more oil and gas and coal than the others would pay more and they would get less. Now, is this one way of approaching it? Well, yeah, certainly. Um... And unfortunately, the truth of the matter is this should have happened 20 years ago. So I, I would agree like that should be something that should occur. I think largely what, what's happened is it's been a failure of the market and a failure of capital al allocation that's got us to where we're at. So, for example, you've been able to pollute for 50 years, putting carbon into the atmosphere and not charge from it, not charge for the pollution. And if you remove it, like by planting a tree, for example, you're paid nothing. So what they're suggesting certainly addresses the first part of that. The problem, though, is to keep us below one and a half degrees of warming, we have to reduce CO2 emissions by 45% by 2030 and net zero by 2050. And to keep below two, two degrees, we have to re reduce CO2 emissions by 25% by 2030 and net zero by 2070. So certainly that's, I, I agree, there should be a carbon tax. I don't know if it gets us there quick enough. That that would be my concern. Yeah. Well, just to give credit to market price signals, one of the biggest changes in uh, carbon usage over the last 20 years has been in the U.S., largely as we switched out towards cleaner natural gas from dirtier coal. And this has been entirely driven by the fact that natural gas became so cheap after the shale revolution. So we can actually see large swings if the market prices signal the right indication for capitalists to uh, deploy capital. Yeah, and I would even take it further. So if you look at Denmark, uh, emissions are down 40% since 1990, and GDP is up 2.6x, right? In the U.S., emissions are flat since 1990, largely due to what you said, Evan, and GDP is three and a half times higher. You know, th there's been a decoupling between economic performance and CO2 emissions into the air. And I think one thing that people aren't really considering is, like, 75% of CO2 is fossil fuel burning in transportation, energy, and industry. And there's largely economic solutions for a lot of these things. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And there's also tertiary benefits, like massive reduction in air pollution, which results in 4 million premature deaths per year. And one quick example I give you is, take a country like Nicaragua. Renewables have gone from 25% to 90% just since 2005. Sorry, 90% is the target, but it's well on its way there. Over that, call it 14-year period, the economy doubled. Um, but now think of what that's done. You know, you've taken a country that was dependent on the price of oil and effectively the U.S. dollar, and now they have a country which has a fixed energy cost, you know, no market variations to be concerned about, you know, less pollution, 
you know, in some of the developing countries that have gone the fossil fuel route, that's ended quite poorly with, you know, wealth being concentrated. So it, this is possible, but these reductions have actually been huge benefits. What about uh, China and India that uh, use a lot, of course, of carbon-based fuels? And, and furthermore, I think that uh, in a kind of a rough justice way, they are entitled to having been so long in the course of de- so long awaiting uh, economic development. Well, I think that's a bit of a myth. So, so two things I want to address. So, developing countries, which are not the ones you mentioned, but they only have 10% of reserves. So, this argument that they should be allowed to do what we did is, is kind of missing the point. Like they should just go the Nicaragua route to the extent possible. Now, if you think India, you know, GDP growth is roughly 6%, but emissions are only up 2%. So kind of like I said, the emission, you know, versus GDP is, is decoupling. And they are doing massive renewable investments, 32 gigawatts per year, roughly over the next 12 years. And India is going EV only by 2030, or at least that's the target. So India is largely has reduced emissions, or sorry, has reduced the growth and, and it I would bet they will significantly reduce going forward. Now, China is kind of a different animal. Um, and you read all these stories about, you know, the coal and how much they're building, but coal plant capacity in China is only 50%. And as you guys know, probably better than anybody, they're very good at building cities they don't need and third airports, uh, which they don't use. So it also makes me wonder, like, if China built for what, you know, they currently use and need, what their actual emissions would be. You know, yeah. I think it's as inflated as probably the, the GDP is. So the coal being built is, One of the biggest uses of CO2 is actually in uh, producing concrete, of which China uses the most in the world. And anybody who's been to any Chinese city sees empty buildings just dotting the skyline. Correct. As you guys have called, and you know, I've taken a skeptical look at China Evergrande myself, you know, I do wonder you know, what, what the emissions would look like if, if they were more rational. Well, which uh, China brings us to uh, investing in China, investing in a company in China. And Tim, you are not, uh, you know, you're not a full-time uh, a climatologist. You are, in fact, um, an investor and a thinking of, a thinker about investing, and, and you produce on beyond investing. And one of your ideas is to be short what would seem to be a very green company, N I O Inc. Neo. Is they pronounce it Neo or as in nihilism? I guess so. Yeah. Uh, Nile. Nihilism. Anyway, it's NIO Inc. I'm looking now, Tim, at the October 2019 on Beyond Investing. And the description of NIO Inc., it looks like uh, one of the the best short ideas you're likely to encounter. Could you give us a a quick cook's tour of this this enterprise? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So NIO is kind of an even crazier Tesla. Uh, They're trying to sell luxury autos at roughly 50 grand per into a, a sub- significantly less affluent Chinese society than the American. Uh, they outsource their ma- a lot of their manufacturing. So they kind of have almost a fixed cost per unit, which means that basically as sales are growing, which they are almost 100% year over year, there's no operating leverage. And this gets to a key point because they sell cars at a loss. This company operates with negative gross margins, and as sales have increased, gross margins have weakened. So sales are up 21% year-over-year in their latest Q3, but gross margins weakened to minus 12%. This has only been a company since 2016, and they've only been selling cars since 2018, but they've lost an incredible $4.5 billion over that period. Some of that was 
1.7 billion U.S. investors gave it with the IPO and its uh, convertible bond. So if we look at the, the Q3 earnings report, they burnt through 350 million. They only have 270 million of cash on hand, of which benefited from increasing payables by 150 million and getting 100 million from Tencent. The earnings report basically had going concern language. Its convertible bond, the U.S. dollar, has traded up from 33 cents to call it 50 cents on the dollar. So if you have a company that's running out of cash, sells this product at a massive loss, have been looking for funding for six months, haven't found any, including from the CEO who said he put in 100 million but hasn't. You know, isn't there a technical term for what something like that would be worth? Uh, I think funding secured is a term for it. <laughs> I think it would be worthless, but uh, <laughs> yeah, something like that. But, you know, U.S. auto, global auto manufacturers trade at roughly, you know, 0.5 times EV to sales. Uh, Tesla obviously trades a lot higher at 3.9. But NEO, which looks to me as if it's going bankrupt any day now, is trading at an incredible 4.6 times EV to sales. So just a valuation that's, I don't even know what the term for it is, but just so out of context as to be stupefying. And to put that in 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 context, you know, we're talking about a company with uh, a $3.8 billion market cap, yet it's $750 million convertible issue trades at 50 cents on the dollar, implying, you know, equity value of less than $400 million. So in terms of capital structure arbitrages, this has been one of the crazier ones I've ever seen. You know, in the same, what can't go on forever won't, uh, it seems like this company might eventually come to an end. But in watching China, things seem to go on much longer than um, anyone gives them credit for. We had covered Evergrande, which you had mentioned in your note, uh, which is a Chinese builder that is heavily leveraged. And to the surprise of, I think, anyone who's dug into their balance sheet, the company has not only survived and persisted, but the stock price has gone up. Yeah, well, and I think you can make the same argument about Tesla. You know, if it if it wasn't for... I think what's interesting with NEO is is the capital is not really being provided by China. It's, it, you know... It was provided by U.S. investors, and the stock is traded in the United States. So I think, at least for me personally, that makes the overvaluation much harder to reconcile. Oh, no. It seems to me much easier. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I want to know is where is SoftBank? And I, I see that uh, Bailey Gifford is there, that Tencent is there, all the, guy, all the boys and girls are there, but where is SoftBank? Well, what's interesting is if you look at EV sales in China, they had massive subsidies in something like 400 different companies, but those subsidies have been cut. And if you look at the explanation that's been given in, in the news reports, it's been, um, you know, they're trying to serve, you know, survival of the fittest and there's too much capital going into it, including China Evergrande poured billions into EV manufacturing. So, you know, there, there might be some coincidence to you know, NEO not getting money and some of these government measures. And the other thing I would like to point out is that, you know, you're talking at a company trading at 3.4x sales that desperately needs cash. I find it shocking that the market not only thinks they're going to get the cash, but on such advantageous terms that they wouldn't get massively diluted. Tim, Tim, $11 trillion worth of sovereign debt is trading worldwide at nominal yields of less than zero. NEO is nothing. A question Wait, for you, absolutely. So, so in addition to writing about uh, on beyond investing, you also invest for your own PA. So I, I imagine you are short the stock. For a company that looks like it's going up bankrupt, has very little cash, negative gross margins, um, and kind of a lot of overhangs, how easy to borrow is this? How crowded a name is it? 
I think the uh, last time I, the borrow rate is expensive. Last time I checked, um, I'm sure that that's significantly lower now. I think the short interest is roughly 30%. You know, I, I will point out that obviously I've lost money on this trade. I think yeah, the borrow rate is 34%. That, that's okay. the It was at closer to 50%. Tim, are you of the, of the view that a heavy short interest is uh, likely? to be bearish more than it is to be bullish? That is to say, uh, are the shorts on balance correct? I would say um, often vindicated, but uh, usually poor in the short term, which was uh, kind of my 2019 experience. <laughs> I think that's pretty fair. I've seen some studies that show that um, heavily shorted names tend to underperform the markets going forward. It just could be a painful ride. Yeah, well, and, and I would also point out that an interesting effect that I'm seeing anyways, is there's a correlation between the amount of passive owning and some of these valuations. Like if you look at the NEOs of the Teslas of the world, there's a massive between insider and, and, and passive holdings. It, it's pretty significant, you know, 40, 50% for some of these things. And I think that probably goes a large way to possibly explaining what's going on here. Tim, are you of the view that passive investing, that index-based investing is a bubble? I don't know. It, you know, I, I made this joke to, to some people that, you know, there could be a situation where you wake up and find out that, you know, Elon Musk has fled the country, EFO is arrested, and 50% of the people that own the stock may not sell it. Obviously, 25% being him, but given that that company is probably owned by every ESG, you know, I, I feel the whole thing is a bit of a tragedy of the commons. Like, it's, it's rational for everybody to own low-cost broad-based equity ETFs, you know, I would recommend that to most people. However, there's going to be negative consequences. And, you know, it, it, it is profoundly weird that, you know, you could have a situation that's brave news, uh, you know, extinction type news comes out and a significant chunk of the shareholders couldn't or wouldn't sell just due to mandate. And that feels, that feels wrong. I don't know at which point that level. So, on the Sorry. one hand, you made a pretty clear case that we need to invest in order to um, decarbonize in the future. And right now, one yeah. of the most popular investment themes is ESG. For fund providers, it's a great way to charge uh, higher fees for a product that people want. And for companies, it's a great way to jump through hoops to get a, natu a new natural set of buyers. But sometimes when you look at the portfolios of ESG um, you know, funds, you're left scratching your head wondering how these companies tick any of the three boxes, environmental, social, or governance. How do you think about kind of the need to actually make these kind of investments versus the kind of get-rich-quick schemes that you see from a lot of Wall Street? Yeah, I would agree. It's it's something I think kind of struggle with. Like in, if we were in order to to effectively invest for mitigating the worst effects of climate change, you know, you would replace furnaces with heat pumps. You would replace gas gas stoves with you know regular stoves. You would massively deploy solar and wind. You know, and, and in terms of EVs, like, yes, they are certainly better. But, you know, the new Toyota RAV plug-in goes 40 miles on a charge, and then the hybrid kicks in. And considering most Americans drive 37 miles a day, that seems like a cheaper, more pragmatic, near-term option that, you know, people should be incentivized or, or forced into buying rather than the traditional ICE engines. Um, but, but to your point, like, that's totally devoid from, you know, Tesla stock at you know, $500 a share. Investing in one does not beget the other, if you know what I mean. Like uh, buying Tesla stock does not really add to uh, climate change mitigation. 
Well, Tesla is a major world religion. There's no arguing about it in secular terms. But Tim, do you have a view on nuclear power and therefore on uranium? I do. It feels to me that nuclear is going to be necessary. You know, some people disagree, especially in the environmental communities. But while it seems that renewable energy has gotten so cheap that it could be ubiquitous, it's not going to fit every jurisdiction. And some people say nuclear is structurally too expensive at, you know, Studies show 10 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, Roughly half of that is regulatory. And nuclear really hasn't been allowed to undergo the deployment, you know, cost-cutting curves that the other technologies have. So I think, you know, this isn't a super strong opinion, but I I think it has to be part of the mix going forward. And certainly you can't afford to shut down the operating plants now until you figure it out how to replace them with some type of zero-carbon energy. and if you look at where uranium is, it's certainly not priced for that. So I, too, have been bullish on uranium. I think the trickier thing, to me at least, is finding the right way to express that trade. But I do agree with the thesis. Well, Tim Berger, this has been uh, terrific. Thank you for coming on the air with us. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. So, uh, so Tim Bergen, father of two, investor, thinker, and because, just because he wants to be, author, uh, we are grateful indeed for your joining us today. And ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you soon or listen to you or you'll listen to us. Uh, Yeah, you'll listen to us soon. Another issue of Current Yield. 